0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: You can see the pain in the mother's eyes. The lead starts right now. After meeting with U.S. troops deployed to Poland, President Biden is about to see up close the agony millions of Ukrainians are dealing with as they flee their homes. And then the faces of war. CNN visits a children's hospital in Ukraine and meets an 11 year old girl shot in the face by Russian soldiers while trying to escape Putin's war. Plus, an exclusive interview with a woman who is in charge of protecting America from cyber attacks. Why the threat from Russia is unprecedented right now. Hello and welcome to the lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper on this Friday. And we begin this hour in Warsaw, Poland, where President Biden is focusing on the human toll of the war in Ukraine and the lives upended by Russia's brutal invasion. More than 3.7 million people have now left Ukraine, more than half crossing into Poland, a NATO ally. The president visited U.S. service members stationed just 75 miles away from where Russian bombs have fallen. President Biden told them the stakes of this war go far beyond the borders of Ukraine. As Caitlin Collins reports, the president's trip gives him a firsthand look at a region feeling deeply unsettled by the war next door.
2: In Poland today, President Biden highlighting the human toll of Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
3: Those little babies, little children looking at mothers who uh, you don't have to understand the language they speak you see in their eyes pain
2: more than two million people have arrived in poland since the invasion began displaced by what biden calls putin's war of choice
3: it's like something out of a science fiction movie you turn on the television and see what the, what these towns look like in cities
2: After pledging a billion dollars in assistance, Biden was briefed by Polish President Duda and other officials leading the humanitarian response.
1: We do not call them refugees, they are our guests, our brothers, our neighbors from Ukraine, who today are in a very difficult situation where 12 million people have fled their houses
2: by the war. The president indicating he wanted to see the war up close, but was ultimately advised against going into Ukraine.
3: Quite frankly, part of my disappointment is that, I can't see it firsthand like I have in other places. They will not let me understandably, I guess it, cross the border.
2: Earlier, the president also spent time with US troops based in Poland, sent there as a visible deterrent to President Putin.
3: We have 100,000 American forces here in Europe. We haven't had that in a long, long time, because we are the organizing principle for the rest of the world.
2: Biden was in Zizhiv, the Polish city that has become a hub for getting Western military aid into Ukraine, and anti-aircraft missiles were seen at the airport. The commander-in-chief sitting down for a slice of pizza with service members and later sharing personal stories about his late son,
3: Beau. Proudest thing ever did was put that uniform on. Like many of you, he didn't have to go either. There were hundreds and thousands of people like my son, like all of you. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
2: And Pamela, today, President Biden came face-to-face with those U.S. forces who are stationed here in Poland. Tomorrow, he'll come face-to-face with some of the Ukrainian refugees. Who have fled Ukraine since this invasion started and are now in Poland. Obviously, that has the potential to be a very emotional day for President Biden. And after that, he'll give what the White House is billing as a major address. I'm told it'll be a broader look at what this trip has meant, not just for him, but also for overall the look of this invasion, which the White House has warned, unfortunately, they don't expect to end anytime soon. After that, Pamela, he'll return back to Washington.
1: All right. Caitlin Collins reporting live for us in Warsaw. Thank you. And from Poland to Romania, which also shares a border with Ukraine, more than 570,000 refugees have fled there into Romania. CNN's Miguel Marquez joins us live from Bucharest, Romania. And Miguel, the Biden administration says it will allow 100,000 Ukrainian refugees into the U.S. Is there any interest among those you've been talking to there?
4: Oh, yeah. They would love to go to the U.S. It's not been a very clear process for how they get those visas. It's only been announced, so it will create a lot of interest, certainly. We spoke to one family today from Dnipro, an a area that's just started to get hit. Uh, the region has been hit uh, a little bit for the last, over the last month. This is a family of six, four kids from age six to age 13. Uh, they are now applying for a Canadian visa. They think they will get it very soon, and they decided in an instant It was time to go. It's difficult for the kids. They really want to talk to their friends.
5: But the situation as it is, we are moving
4: on. And that's exactly the point. They are moving on. Three weeks ago when we got here, there was shock and disbelief at what was happening. People planned to go back to Ukraine as soon as they could. Now it seems to be settling into realization that they are not going back anytime soon, and they are looking for options for the long term. And for this family, it looks like they will be moving to Canada. Mm.
1: Pam? Do Romanian officials expect... The situation to get worse because we know how many have actually left ukraine according to the u.n numbers but there's a lot of people who have left their homes who still remain in ukraine who may want to get out too
4: It's those internally displaced that they're very concerned with. We've met a lot of people who hung out in the Lviv area for several weeks, and now they're starting to come into Romania and other countries. The number of refugees coming across the border into Romania is starting to creep up. It's been creeping up a little bit in the last few days. So that may be the start of a much bigger wave. It all depends on what happens with those humanitarian corridors and how much harder the Russians continue to hit those civilian areas across the country. Pam?
1: All right, Miguel Marquez with important reporting from Bucharest, Romania. Thank you, Miguel. Joining me live to discuss is former U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Kurt Volker. He is also the former U.S. Special Representative for Ukrainian negotiations. So, Mr. Ambassador, I want to start with your reaction to what we just heard there from Miguel and his reporting. Do you think it's likely that these refugees will see their homes again? so many are still holding out hope for that.
6: Um, and I, I think quite naturally, they don't want to be refugees. They, they're not looking to move. They're very proud to be Ukrainians. They want to get back to their homes. And for that to happen, Putin actually has to lose this war. Uh, so that needs to be an important focus going forward is to, to try to make sure the Ukrainians prevail and give them all the help we can. And I do think that they will make it. I don't think Putin ultimately can take and hold Ukraine. So they will have an opportunity to go home. But it's just heartbreaking to see the situation they're in and the choices they're having to make now.
1: You talk about the help that they need. Ukrainian officials are telling the U.S. they urgently need 500 anti-aircraft missiles and 500 anti-tank missiles. Do you think that's a realistic request that the U.S. could meet?
6: Um, Well, not alone. I think that it's uh, up for all countries, the United States and our allies, to look at what we have in stores, to look at what we can give from our own military and then fill behind with procurement to to beef up our own military uh, after having transferred that. Uh, But I think it is a realistic number. And I think that it is also something that is essential for us to do. Uh, We have to recognize that we can't allow Putin's aggression to be rewarded, uh, either with territory or with conquering Ukraine. We can't allow a permanent humanitarian catastrophe like this. And if he's not stopped in Ukraine, when there's a Ukrainian military and government ready to do the fighting, we're going to be facing an even worse situation after. So it's essential that we give them everything that we can.
1: President Biden, as you heard earlier, said that he is disappointed that he can't cross into Ukraine. But he will be meeting with refugees in Poland and he will be giving a major address, according to the White House. What would you like to hear from him on this?
6: Well, a couple of things. And and first off, I'm so glad that he is doing that. Uh, I think it's an important symbol of the United States being present in Poland, meeting with the refugees, uh, showing the human face of this conflict to the world, which I think is, is critically important. But we need to hear a couple of things. We need to hear that Ukraine's survival as an independent, sovereign state is an American interest and it's a NATO interest. And we will do everything that we can to make sure that they survive. We need to see a great outpouring for the humanitarian uh, relief effort. And we need to have a tough warning, as he has been doing already, tough warning against any use of weapons of mass destruction.
1: I want to ask you about um, his response as well and what he has taken off the table, a number of responses off the table for Ukraine. If Russia launches a chemical, biological or nuclear attack on Ukraine, what options remain that, that fits that fit with the president's previously stated limit saying there would be consequences.
6: Yeah, well, I think we have to to stop putting limits on ourselves. Uh, What Putin has done in Ukraine is unconscionable and intolerable. Uh, So we, we should stop putting the limits out there in public and make Putin begin to wonder what it is we actually may do. The last thing he wants is to draw NATO or United States or others into this conflict. He needs to be warned and he needs to be careful. Uh, As far as uh, what things should be, I don't think it's wise, and I think the president is right, don't tell in advance what we will do. Uh, Equally, don't say what we won't do. Let Putin be in doubt. But make clear that there will be forceful consequences of any use of weapons of mass destruction by Russia.
1: All right. Ambassador Kurt Volker, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. Resisting the Russians, new evidence Russian forces may be stopped in their tracks outside of Kyiv. Plus, she's an aspiring gymnast who loves animals. But now this 11-year-old girl is being treated for a gunshot wound in the face in a Ukrainian children's hospital. Her story, next. In the world lead today, the Ukrainian army says its forces have killed yet another Russian general. This one during fighting near Kherson in southern Ukraine. This makes the sixth Russian general believed to be killed since the start of Putin's invasion. And around the capital of Kyiv, Russian forces are now in a defensive position, showing no signs of further ground movements. Ukrainians are also getting a clear picture of a major loss. Officials in Mariupol now believe as many as 300 people were killed when Russia bombed a theater last week. This was the building that had the word children spelled out in big letters right outside. New video today showing the immediate aftermath of that bombing, as you see right here. You can see the holes in the walls and people making their way down dusty stairwells filled with debris. CNN's Fred Pleiken is in Kyiv today. So, Fred, U.S. officials believe that Ukrainians have stopped Russians from advancing into the capital city on the ground. But that doesn't mean... The attacks have stopped, right?
7: No, it certainly doesn't. And and you know, throughout the course of the day, Pamela, we have been hearing a lot of air raid sirens uh, that were going off here in the Ukrainian capital. I was actually out and about for a good chunk of the day, and there were quite a few of those air alarms, and then also outgoing uh, what seemed to us to be surface-to-air missile fire uh, coming from Ukrainian positions. Obviously, they were thinking or they were, they were seeing some sort of Russian movement uh, in the air that could have threatened uh, the Ukrainian capital. And then the battle still does go on near Kiev uh, as well. What we're seeing on screen right now is that suburb of Irpin, where a lot of the fighting has been going on, where the Ukrainians are saying they're now actually in control of about 80 percent of that place. As you can see, massive destruction on the ground there. Uh, But we've been in touch with the local authorities there, and they say that there still is a lot of shelling, going on from the Russian military, that there are still people actually dying on the ground there as well. Apparently, there's still about 4,000 residents who are actually inside that place, believe it or not, when you see the scale of the destruction there. So that's something that is a constant battle, still very much on the doorstep of the Ukrainian capital. Uh, and then uh, elsewhere, to the south of the Ukrainian capital, not very far from here, uh, the Russians say that they hit an oil depot. fuel depot from the ukrainian military they say it's the largest one that was still intact that the ukrainian military uh, was using and you know you can see in the video some billowing smoke coming uh, from there as the uh, russians say that they used a caliber cruise missile uh, to take that uh, to take that depot out obviously that a blow to the ukrainian military but at the same time they are saying right now ukraine is on the offensive pamela
1: And Fred, from the beginning of this invasion, Russia has used Belarus to move troops and resources. And now a U.S. defense official says Russia is moving resources from the country of Georgia into Ukraine. What do we know about that?
8: Mm.
7: Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that, that's what the U.S. is saying. And what we have to keep in mind is that the Russians do have a force uh, in, inside Georgia. They have an occupied territory there called Southern uh, Ossetia. So they do hold some territory uh, in, in, in what, what is Georgia after the invasion in 2008. And now the Russians seem to be moving some forces out of there, possibly moving them here to the battlefield in Ukraine. And, you know, that could obviously indicate that the Russians are facing Personnel shortages and obviously gear shortages also uh, on the ground as well. It's unclear where exactly they would be moving into Ukraine. But, you know, you're absolutely right. The Russians have been using other countries to move gear and personnel into uh, the Ukraine theater. Belarus, of course, so far has been by far uh, the the most important sort of logistical place for the Russians. But now, again, possibly an indication that the Russians having some issues on the ground. All
1: right, Fred Pleitgen, thank you so much. Live for us from Kyiv, Ukraine. And Ukraine's southeast region has seen some of the worst of Russia's invasion. And escaping cities in southeast Ukraine, such as Odessa, Kherson, and Mariupol, require Ukrainians to get past Russian troops. Well, one Ukrainian family says their encounter with Russian forces turned violent. Despite trying to comply and putting their hands up, Russian troops still fired at them, hitting a little girl. CNN's Ivan Watson found them at a children's hospital, where sadly, many other families have similar stories.
9: 11-year-old Milena Uralova lies in a hospital, recovering nine days after a Russian soldier shot her through the face. Horribly wounded, and yet quick to show off how she can count in English.
3: One, two, three, four, five, six, seven.
9: SHE CAN'T SPEAK LOUDLY, HER MOTHER ELENA EXPLAINS. SHE HAS A BULLET WOUND TO HER JAW AND THE BASE OF HER TONGUE, SHE SAYS. THE BULLET WAS LODGED IN HER THROAT, NEAR HER CAROTID ARTERY. MILENA uh, DOES GYMNASTICS. SHE'S GOING TO SHOW ME A COUPLE OF VIDEOS. THIS WAS MILENA BEFORE RUSSIA INVADED UKRAINE, FLIPPING AND DANCING but now she can barely walk. We met Milena here in a makeshift bomb shelter in the basement of a children's hospital. The nurses here say that six or seven times a day and night due to air raid sirens, they have to bring these newborns who all have medical complications in and out of this room for hours at a time for their safety. The windows protected by sandbags. On March 16th, Ilena, her two daughters and mother-in-law, fled from the Ukrainian port city of Mariupol after enduring weeks of Russian bombardment, jumping into the back of a car with two strangers to escape. They navigated many Russian military checkpoints, and then at around noon, Ilena says, they made a turn towards the town of Vasilivka and stumbled across Russian soldiers who opened fire on the car without warning.
1: We started turning, and that's when they started firing at us from submachine guns. After that, of course, the driver stopped. We started opening our doors, walking out with our hands up, after which they were shouting something. We did not know what, and that is when we saw what happened to my daughter, the younger one. We took her out of the car as she was wounded.
9: Her mother says realizing their mistake, the Russian soldiers gave her daughter first aid and sent her to a nearby hospital in the Russian-occupied town of Tokmak. A Red Cross vehicle later brought her to this hospital for life-saving surgery. The hospital has treated nine wounded children in the last two weeks. What injuries are you seeing now?
5: Different injuries, different trauma. It's head trauma, it's uh, amputation, traumatic amputation. It's a uh, um, bullet's trauma.
9: Dr. Ivan Anikin says Milena is now stable and will live, hopefully without long-term physical disabilities. But
5: she has not so good psychological uh, status. She worries, she cry, She afraid uh, different sounds.
9: Milena's mother has a message for the Russian soldiers who shot her daughter.
8: Go back home. Why are they here?
10: They are mercenaries who don't care about us, don't care about the situation in this country
1: or this war.
8: They don't care who
10: they are shooting at.
9: As for Milena, she shows photos of her cats, Musya and Pusia, and looks forward to one day going back to doing gymnastics. Ivan Watson, CNN, Zaporizhia, Ukraine.
1: Our thanks to Ivan Watson for that Powerful reporting and telling that little girl's story. We wish her the best if she heals. And coming up, I talk to the woman in charge of protecting America from the hidden Russian threats that could cripple the U.S. The CNN exclusive interview up next. In the tech lead in an exclusive interview today, the head of cybersecurity for the U.S. government warns Russia may not only attack attempt a cyber attack on critical infrastructure in the U.S., but might also try to push disinformation about that attack to sow panic. Jen Easterly leads CISA, or the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. The threat of a Russian cyber attack is not new, so I asked Easterly why Americans and companies need to be hyper-vigilant right now. And here's her response.
8: It was pretty unprecedented to see the President of the United States earlier this week make a specific statement about Russian cyber activity and a focus on exploring options for potential cyber attacks. So why should Americans care about that? Well, at the end of the day, these networks, these systems, this data, this is really what underpins our daily lives. It's our power. It's our water. Uh, It's how we get money from the bank. Uh, It's how we get gas at the pump. It's how we get food at the grocery store. That infrastructure is at risk of malicious cyber activity.
1: Easterly also told me the economic sanctions on Russia could also have consequences in cyberspace.
8: Malicious cyber activity is part of the Russian playbook. And so there could be unintended cascading consequences from Russian attacks, cyber attacks in Ukraine, in Europe, there could be an uptick in ransomware activity, and there could be deliberate retaliatory attacks for the very severe, very punitive sanctions that the US and our allies have come together as a community to levy on Russia, and and the Russian government may feel like they can use these capabilities, this preparatory activity, the exploration for potential cyber attacks, uh, to have a real impact on the American people.
1: Easterly also weighed in on the invasion likely not going as Putin planned, saying those battlefield setbacks could be putting more pressure on Russian intelligence officials. The cybersecurity agency CISA wants to stress every organization and business large and small should be proactive against cyber incidents using multi-factor authentication systems, keeping software up to date. Organizations can also report abnormal cyber activity anytime by emailing report at cisa.gov. And I'm going to have much more on my interview with the head of CISA tomorrow evening on CNN Newsroom starting at 7 o'clock Eastern and also, she talks about how her past experience at the NSA breaking into other computers is helping inform how she is leading the agency now and how she is protecting the U.S. from Russian cyber attacks. Well, coming up, growing calls for a Supreme Court justice to recuse himself from some cases after text messages between the justice's wife and Trump's chief of staff are revealed. In our politics lead, newly revealed text messages raising conflict of interest concerns about the nation's highest court. The January 6th committee is now in possession of 29 texts sent between Mark Meadows and conservative activist Jenny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, in which she pleads with the former Trump White House chief of staff to fight to overturn the 2020 election. As CNN's Ryan Nobles reports, the communications revealed the extent of the behind-the-scenes push to undermine the vote. They ain't seen nothing yet.
11: Controversy swirling around Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, after it was revealed she was pushing Mark Meadows, then White House Chief of Staff, to do all he could to keep Donald Trump in office after he lost the 2020 election. The revelations coming in a series of texts obtained by CNN and in the hands of the January 6th Select Committee. On November 10th, shortly after news networks had declared Joe Biden the winner, Thomas wrote Meadows, quote, help this great president stand firm, Mark. She went on to say the majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. Thomas also pushed Meadows to get behind the dubious legal effort by conservative lawyer Sidney Powell to overturn the election. Writing on November 19th, sounds like Sidney and her team are getting inundated with evidence of fraud. Make a plan. Release the Kraken and save us from the left taking America down. It is these type of texts that could cause problems for Justice Thomas. He weighed in on one election case, arguing the court should look at a case seeking to overturn the election results in four states.
7: The problem is it creates an an enormous appearance of impropriety that uh, Justice Thomas is ruling on these issues when his wife is intimately involved in the underlying facts.
11: Ginny Thomas is a longtime outspoken conservative activist. And while she has insisted that her work is separate from her husband's, they do have a close personal relationship.
8: My wife is totally my best friend.
11: And now his wife is under scrutiny as part of an investigation he has already ruled on. Justice Thomas casting a dissenting vote on a decision by the high court allowing the House Select Committee investigating January 6th to gain access to thousands of White House documents that Trump tried to keep secret several Democratic senators, including Ron Wyden of Oregon, calling on Thomas to recuse himself going forward on all matters related to January 6th. At the bare minimum, Justice Thomas needs to recuse himself from any case related to the January 6th investigation. And should Donald Trump run again, any case related to the 2024 election? Clarence Thomas, who left the hospital on Friday, recovering from an infection, declined to talk to CNN, but he still has the backing of Republicans in Congress.
7: No, I think, I think <laughs> Justice Thomas could make his decisions like he's made them every other time. It's his decision based upon law.
11: And so now the question for the committee is what to do with this information. And I'm told there's an active deba- debate among members of the committee to try and to determine if it's even worth it to call Ginny Thomas in front of their committee to answer questions about what she know, knew about the events leading up to January 6. There is a concern it could be a distraction from their overall mission. This is something the committee expects to talk about in earnest next week when the House returns to session. Pamela.
1: All right, Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill, who initially broke this story along with uh, our colleague Jamie Gengel and others. So let's discuss with our correspondents and commentators. Tia, to, to you first. These text messages reveal a lot about Jenny Thomas and her thinking after the November election and her desire to overturn the election results. What stands out to you?
12: I think what stands out to me is that the text messages appear to indicate that she was among the many Americans who believed a lot of the QAnon conspiracy theories. And it shows how widespread QAnon's reach has been. You know, that the fact that a a spouse of a Supreme Court justice believes some of these baseless, you know, falsehoods and lies, that to me is what's most surprising. And also that she felt empowered to go to some of the highest levels of the executive branch at the time, you know, spreading those theories all the way up you know just short of the president that's really surprising to me right she had a top line to uh, the president's top
1: aide um so abby you heard there ryan talking about the committee's trying to figure out whether they ask her to come in what they should do what do you think the significance of these texts are to
5: the committee well I, i think we don't know the extent of jenny thomas's involvement frankly in all of this i think it's it's very much an open question given the nature of the messages that she was sending, given the the frequency with which she was communicating with Mark Meadows. uh, I don't think we know enough to know how involved she was or wasn't. Whether the January 6th committee wants to take the time to find out, I I think it's a hard question because uh, maybe she was more involved, but it doesn't rise to the level that it overwhelms the other evidence that they have and it's not worth the effort. Uh, They will have to make that determination. But I think beyond that, the significance of, of this, in part, is also about the, the court, frankly. I mean, this is an anti-democratic project that she was incredibly invested in. She is the wife of a Supreme Court justice who is ruling on these issues. And Clarence Thomas himself has talked recently about the confidence that the American people have in this in the court. I don't see how this doesn't do more to chip away at that than, say, the idea of court packing, which I think most people believe is not going to go anywhere.
1: Right. I mean... Jenny Thomas is a private citizen, but the larger issue here is that her husband is a Supreme Court justice who was the lone dissent uh, in the case that came before the court on turning over White House documents to the January 6th committee. And so it's raising a lot of questions, Kristen, about whether he should have recused himself. What do you think happens with this? I think he would be very wise now that he, I believe, has been discharged from the hospital to issue a statement clarifying how much he has discussed with his wife and what his involvement is if any in her political activism. Um, we've had the there's a precedent for the court just recently there was I believe a controversy uh, between two justices and, and jokes that were were made and they they issued some statements and tried to get that story to go away so issuing statements to try to address controversies would not be new I think it could be appropriate in this case at a minimum to, to set to try to clear the air about What did Justice Thomas know about his wife's text messaging and how separate was this? Right. And and we should remind our viewers that when it comes to recusal, the Supreme Court justices have a different set of standards than the lower courts. It's basically an honor system and they get to decide whether they should or not. And there have been lawmakers weighing in on this for one House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, saying that he doesn't think Justice Thomas should have to recuse himself. But just this week, Senator Ted Cruz, as we all saw, pressed Supreme Court nominee Judge Jackson about recusing herself in a case involving her alma mater's affirmative action policy. So what do you make of this?
13: I mean, the hypocrisy there is like in broad daylight this week where Republicans are asking, as you mentioned, uh, potentially future justice to recuse herself from an affirmative active action case. And there's no question. I mean, I don't think it's a dispute that uh, justice, justice Thomas should not have ruled in this case. In fact, he may have known that his wife's texts were the ones that would have been revealed if, if the uh, committee got access to the president's uh, documents and so there's maybe more communication involved that we still don't know about that the committee might have access to, and I, I think that's there's no question that's one part of the story here, which is the courts, as Abby said. I think the other, which the the committee has done a great job and keeps trickling out, they've they've, they've filed in court that they believe that there was a c- criminal conspiracy executed by this pres- by the former president and his campaign, and are showing that this isn't just uh, a bunch of hoodlums who showed up on the mall. And it wasn't just the president. There's a vast set of individuals, including the chief of staff, the wife of a Supreme Court justice. We keep seeing more of this trickle out, showing that there were people that were trying to be involved in overturning an election.
1: But quickly, what would you say to those um, on the other side of this who say, look, she's a private citizen. She's just the wife. She can have her own life. She can have her own thoughts and opinions. Why why does this matter? Because those in her camp are staunchly defending her. And that is the argument that they're making.
12: You know, I think, you know, one of the things we've talked about is if this was applied to something on the other side of the aisle, would the same standard be in place? And again, we've seen Republicans indicate that there are things they wouldn't tolerate for someone who perhaps um, disagreed with them politically. So if we're talking about what is the standard for recusal, what is the standard for conflict of interest? What is the standard of, you know what type of activity that someone close to a Supreme Court justice is doing that perhaps would compromise the judge's ability to be impartial. That's what we need to consider.
5: What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's
12: exactly right. Look, this is a a question of uh, whether
5: or not Justice Thomas, frankly, should ever rule on these issues when it comes to uh, this president. His election lies. The attempts, by the way, which would have would would in the minds of some of these individuals brought the issue of the election all the way to the Supreme Court. The purpose was to get this issue to the court. And the question is, can Justice Thomas rule on those issues, given his wife's involvement in the conspiracies to overturn the last election?
1: Right. It's one thing to look at what he's done in the past. He didn't recuse. But like you said, these issues are still going to be coming before the court. Thank you all so much, and be sure to join Abby Phillip for Inside Politics Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern. Coming up, amusement park horror. A teenager dies after falling from a ride hundreds of feet in the air. CNN talks to his father up next. International League tragedy on a recently opened amusement park ride in Orlando. Investigators are looking for the reason why 14-year-old Tyree Sampson fell to his death last night from a nearly 40-story-high ride at a Florida amusement park, billed by park officials as the world's tallest freestanding drop tower. Just-released footage shows the moments before the accident. And we want to warn you, this video is very disturbing. CNN's Layla Santiago joins us live from Miami with more. And Layla, you just spoke to the father of the 14-year-old victim. What did he tell you?
10: Yeah, tough conversation, Pamela. The father of Tyree Sampson-Yarnell, bottom line, he wants answers. Uh, He says that there's a lot that he doesn't understand. The only thing he knows for sure is that his only son, one that he described as kind and talented with hopes of maybe one day uh, going into pro football, will no longer be here to live out his dreams. He says that he has not heard from any authorities or anybody from the company or the, the amusement park he found out about. This actually through social media.
8: It felt like somebody uh, hit me so hard in my stomach, I just lost I lost lost wind. And the pain behind it could never be taken away. And sorry is not gonna take it back. And no monies, no nothing in the world could replace that young man. And uh it's just, I just said, it said a, a young man, bright future, been taken away from him and over, over a ride or amusement park.
10: So what he wants from this is not only answers, but to ensure that it never happens to another parent or child. Again, Tyree was from Missouri. He was here with his football team on spring break, Pamela.
1: I can't believe the father found out about this on social media. Mm -hmm. It's just unfathomable. Mm -hmm. That's awful. So what are investigators saying about the incident?
10: So there are several investigations right now. We heard from the Orange County Sheriff's Office today, and they tell us that at this point they believe this is an accident. They got there last night at 11 o'clock after they received multiple 911 calls. We've just received those 911 calls. I want you to, to listen to one of them.
1: Hi, let's you. Hey, Hi, um, 37,
0: one second. Uh, eight four three three international drive at the slingshot.
9: Uh, someone fell from the ride. We are responding. All
0: right. I have help on the way. I have I've received a couple of calls. Is is the patient awake? Uh, we don't know. He's face down. He has blood on his feet. We don't we don't know. Someone said he was breathing,
1: but I'm not sure. Correct. All right. I have help on the way. Are you with him now?
10: Thank you. Yeah, we're all here. And the ride is now shut down indefinitely, Pamela. All right, Lelis and Tiago, thank you so much. We'll be right back.
1: International lead, a happy ending to a scary story. You may have seen this video of a pickup truck getting blown over and spun around by wind from a tornado near uh, in Texas this week. And as it turns out, the driver survived all of this. 16-year-old Riley Leon says when it was all over, he called his mother and told her mom The tornado took me. Riley is recovering from back fractures and may need surgery. However, Chevrolet is donating a brand new red pickup to Riley and his family. And before we go, a correction. In November, we ran a story about Afghans desperate to flee the country who face paying high sums beyond the reach of average Afghans. The story included a lead-in and banner throughout the story that referenced a black market. The use of the term black market in the story was an error. The story included reporting on Zachary Young, a private operator who had been contacted by family members of Afghans trying to flee the country. We did not intend to suggest that Master Mr. Young participated in a black market. We regret the error, and to Mr. Young, we apologize. Tune in to CNN Sunday for a two-hour edition of State of the Union. My colleague, Dana Bash, will be talking to Senator Cory Booker, Senator Jim Breesh, plus chef and philanthropist Jose Andres. And for the second hour, Ukraine's ambassador to the United States joins as well as Senator Mark Warner and Congressman Mike McCall. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern on Sunday. And you can catch more of me on CNN tomorrow and Sunday evening. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room.